G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, this show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. Now, Tim, we're talking about Lamech, and last time we talked about Lamech, it was in the context of chaos and violence and that sort of Quentin Tarantino stuff. And now that we're in the lead-up to the flood story, I guess we're back in the same situation. Yeah, that's right, mate. A lot of what we said about that other Lamech from Genesis 4 still holds true here in this situation, even though we're not talking about the same guy. The other Lamech was characterized as the king of chaos, meaning that he really was the epitome of chaos. But this time around, we're looking at a king in the midst of chaos, and he brings a message of doom for the unrighteous and comfort for the oppressed. It would probably be a good idea for anyone who is listening to this, who hasn't listened to those episodes we did back in season four, to go back and give them a listen so they get what we're talking about here. Yeah, it's definitely a good idea, Chris. For those who came in late, we're talking about season four and episodes 16 and 17 of the podcast. Make sure you check them out. While you're checking stuff out, I might just mention that we're on all the major social media networks, including Threads, which is the new one. All right, so we're just going to assume that our listeners have memorized those episodes from season four, and we're going to move on and get into the text for today concerning Lemech from Genesis 5, which begins in verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived a total of 777 years and then he died. So that was the ESV, and as is our want this season, we're going to read a couple more versions for the sake of comparison. Here's the New English translation of the Septuagint. And Lamech lived 188 years and became the father of a son and named his name Noah, saying, This one shall give us respite from our labors and from the pains of our hands and from the earth that the Lord God has cursed. And Lamech lived after he became the father of Noah 565 years and had sons and daughters. And all the days of Lamech amounted to 753 years, and he died. Lastly, of course, we have the English translation of the Samaritan Pentateuch, which was originally written in Aramaic. And Lamech lived 50 and 3 years and begat a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. And Lamech lived after he begat Noah 600 years and begat sons and daughters, and all the days of Lamech were 650 and 3 years, and he died. Okay, so we talked a lot previously about the association of the idea of chaos with Lamech, and nowhere is that more apparent than when we consider the numbers given for Lamech across the three translations of this text. There is not a single number that carries over from one translation to another, so we end up with nine different figures. Yeah, so how are we supposed to make sense of any of that? Well, there's really nothing new here, Chris. As we've said before, the age of begetting his son is different in each tradition according to the chronology they wish to keep. The number of remaining years of the life of Lamech is just a calculation which is necessary to fill the gap between the birth of his son and the end of his life. Uh, just a note on that one. In the Samaritan Pentateuch, Lamech has to be 600 years between the birth of Noah and his death because he dies in the year of the flood when Noah's 600 years old. 
Anyway, the total lifespan is an artificial construction designed to make a point. As we've said before, none of these guys are really living for hundreds of years, whichever translation you prefer. Okay, so in the past you said that the Septuagint chronology is most likely based on the authentic original text. Does that mean we can just forget about those other numbers and go with the Greek? No. Why? Well, we have a bit of a contrast between what we see with Lemek here compared to what we had with Methuselah last week. It was interesting to see that the Masoretic text actually had the correct numbers for once when we looked at Methuselah. And as usual, the Samaritans are off on their own little tangent. Never mind that. We've talked about that before. But here again, we find that the Masoretic text has preserved the original numbers. The original numbers in the Septuagint appear to have been either mistaken from the outset or partially lost and later reconstructed from other translations. And how do we know that? Well, we know that because the first century witnesses to the original Hebrew give us the same numbers preserved in the Masoretic text, and also because the numbers in the Septuagint look like they've been reconstructed from later sources like the Samaritan Pentateuch. So if we compare those numbers, we look at the begetting ages across the three manuscripts. The Masoretic text gives us 182, the Samaritan Pentateuch 53, and the Septuagint 188. When we look at the remaining years, we've got 595 in the Masoretic, We've got 600 in the Samaritan. We've got 565 in the Greek. Here's where it gets interesting. When we look at the totals, 777 in the Masoretic text, 653 in the Samaritan Pentateuch, 753 in the Septuagint. So you can see the way that the total 753 years of Lamech's life in the Septuagint appears to borrow the 53 on the end from the Samaritan Pentateuch probably due to an early manuscript corruption and the need to fill it with something, but the 7, as in 700, remains from the original figure. And if we didn't have contemporary external sources like Josephus and the Liber Antiquitatum Biblicarum, we'd never have known that the original Hebrew Bible had the same numbers as seen in the later Masoretic text. That makes the 777, as preserved in the Masoretic text, part of the original autograph, and that tells us that we need to take it seriously rather than assuming it's a late insertion on the part of a scribe or rabbi or a Christian redactor. Okay, so we've talked about the number seven a few times at this point. So is there anything different here? Well, some people have suggested some kind of mystical meaning for this or perhaps something a bit more cryptic like gematria, but the truth is that line of thinking came about much later, so it wouldn't have been authentic. Now, a lot of commentators have settled on the idea that the number seven gives you some idea of fullness or perfection. I want to push back against that because I don't think that you'll find anywhere that the number seven isn't more closely tied to divine purpose or the notion of chaos as an instrument of divine will. That's why there are so many sevens that appear in the primeval history and in the book of Revelation, which is all about the realization of a new creation. Having said that, the triple seven is designed to really push this idea of fullness. Well, let's be honest, it's not even triple seven, really. We talked about this before. The word order is important. It's seven and 70 years and 700 years. It's not just seven. There's 10 sevens. There's 100 sevens. It's getting bigger. It's getting more powerful. It's getting hard to comprehend. It's getting out of hand. This is beyond our control now. It gives such a strong intensification of this idea, as I said, of chaos as an agent of divine will, that it's really supposed to indicate that this is it. We're at the extreme end of divine forbearance. The wrath of God is coming, and nothing can stop that. Now, God is about to unleash chaos on the world like nothing ever seen before. And as we know, because we've read the story a million times, that's going to take the form of the Great Flood. But a lot of people don't like the idea that God would have anything to do with chaos. God is a God of order, right? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. God's all about order. And we've just seen that as we went through the creation story. But the idea that God has nothing to do with chaos actually has the effect of denying God's sovereignty over chaos because it forces chaos into the position of being some kind of separate entity that God can't control. And that's completely opposite to the picture painted in the flood account where God is the ultimate master over everything. So perhaps we ought to touch on the idea of chaos as we see it connected to the action of God. In Isaiah 45, verse 7, it says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. And in Isaiah 34:11b, God will stretch out over Edom the measuring line of chaos and the plumb line of desolation. You might remember that verse contains the same language that we get back in Genesis 1, where it's translated without form and void. Tohu vabohu. God has no problem using chaos as part of the process that brings about the ordered world. Our problem with that being part of creation is that we expect everything instantly, and we really don't have any right to say how God should make his creation. And speaking of creation, you might remember all that talk about the waters above and below, and the inhabitants of those domains, which essentially function as agents of chaos within an ordered system. This was all stuff we covered back in season one. God's using chaos all the time, and that's why the Bible can say that God's ways are higher than our ways, and that from our perspective, God's plans are unsearchable and unknowable and beyond anything we can fathom. And that's why we say that God is working all things together for our good. Yeah, yeah, that's the whole reason why the divine is represented by the number seven. We have no control over that. It's indivisible. It's complex. There's nothing simple or easy about it. We just have to trust that it works. And we looked at Methuselah last time and we saw how, despite his excellent service as prophet, priest and king, nothing was going to stop the fact that humanity was on the cusp of judgment. Now we see what that judgment is going to look like, because this superlative use of the number seven means that we're going to see the opposite of the order and the beauty of creation. The world has fallen into violence and it will suffer violence. Mankind has tried to create their own order and now God is going to bring uncreation and disorder upon the earth, even if it is only temporary. We're going to see who's really in control here. Remember that this is ultimately a battle over who truly wields the power and the authority of the divine. And there's a question to be asked here. Who do you trust? Do you trust earthly kings who bring you the so-called gifts of human civilization, the gifts that you gladly accept and then become dependent on and then become slaves to? I'm talking about Lemek here, the old Lemek from Genesis 4. Remember that guy and the bargain he made with the sons of God in order to set up his posterity and to cement his position as someone who wields the power of the divine? Or are you going to trust the Lord God, the creator, the one who provides everything and who reveals his blessings to us in good time, the God who will ultimately demand of you everything, if only to give everything to you through the giving of himself? That's the God we saw in the Garden of Eden. That's how it's supposed to be. That's what we ultimately see in Christ. When we were in Genesis 4 and looking at Lamech, we were talking about the disproportionate retribution of Cain and the way that Lamech intensified that. 77 wasn't just 11 times 7. Lamech was invoking the entire host of heaven against anyone who would dare to touch him. And now in Genesis 5, we find the new Lamech, who is a far cry from the evil and violent character of Genesis 4. And yet, the message that he brings is far more terrifying than anything that tyrant could have threatened. This is getting pretty intense. If only there was some way to relieve the tension here, maybe Maybe change your subject, maybe? Funny you should say that, Chris, because that's exactly what Lemek is here to do. Remember that weird thing we were talking about last season with Lemek and the way that his name doesn't make any sense because it isn't a real name and it just happens to be made up of the three letters in the middle of the Hebrew alphabet. Yeah, I remember that. And we talked about how the use of this name brings to mind the idea of a transition from the first half of a story to the other half. So that's how Lemek functions in this situation as well. In both Genesis 4 and Genesis 5, Lemek is the guy who appears at the turning point of the story and... He gets to say stuff. 
Right, he's like that person in every movie. He's really only there to fill in plot holes by talking about stuff that they couldn't actually show you in the film or, you know, giving hints about what's coming to drive the plot forward. Verse 29 reads, He named him Noah and said he will comfort us in the labour and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. In other words, spoilers! Yeah, he's gone and given away the end of the story, but there's a bit of a messianic element to Lemek's statement here, which means we could be dealing with something prophetic. See, he mentions the labour and painful toil of our hands. That's interesting because the word for toil there, that's itzabon, which is a word that appears only two other times, both in the context of the judgment of God on Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. So I'll read you that passage. That's Genesis 3, verses 16 and 17. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe with painful labor. There it is. You will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, there it is again, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. So the author is making sure we don't miss the idea that whatever Noah is going to do, it's got something to do with addressing the problem of that curse on the ground. So how does that work? I'm not sure Noah ends up being a particularly comforting person. What does he do that addresses this problem? The first thing we need to do is remember what that curse actually is. So let's just remind ourselves where we are and what we're doing. This is an archetypal narrative in which the ground is representative of the human population. And a curse is a pronouncement of an unfavorable destiny, which means that things are not going to work out well for the ground. Remember that the curse, according to Genesis 3.17, which we just read, was the oppression that Adam, as the king over the people of the land, would impose on them, working under the fear of his tyranny to provide bread for him to eat. And it's the tyranny and oppression of those who had taken the side of evil and were afflicting the righteous patriarchs of their tribes that they are looking for relief from. We saw that coming through the line of Cain. Yeah, but I still don't understand how Noah brings some sort of relief or comfort. That's the hardest part to make sense of. Yeah, that's the interesting part. The way that Lamech talks about the reason for the name of Noah is kind of weird because Noah as a word doesn't directly connect to the word that he uses to describe the reason for giving Noah his name. Actually, the same thing happened when Eve named Cain. She gave him a name and explained the meaning, but the meaning didn't match the actual meaning of the word that is his name. Naham is the word in Hebrew that Lamech uses to describe what Noah is going to do. And the translators usually give us something like comfort or relieve or something like that. Actually, the word has a broader semantic range and it includes things like to take vengeance or to grieve or to repent. So I think the way to think about this word is the idea of the kind of feeling of relief that comes both through and after the expression of intense anguish. There's a kind of element of satisfaction in terms of seeing through that grief or that anger or that sorrow or whatever that feeling is. It's kind of like allowing yourself to feel in that moment the fullness of that emotion and everything it entails, which is kind of therapeutic at the end of that process. Right. So how does that work in this context? Okay. So Lemek has expressed this idea that the evil of these people and the violence they're suffering is causing them some intense trauma. And he sees Noah as someone who is going to endure that and come out the other side in such a way that there's hope afterward. In other words, God is going to be avenged and the violence of the people is going to come to an end. And Noah will continue the line of the righteous patriarchs after this has all come to a head and been dealt with. Okay, that makes sense. And I guess that holds true for the immediate context of the flood story. But we're going to have to look to Jesus to see the 
ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy given by Lamech. Yeah, that's right, mate. As far as Noah is concerned, the way he's going to fulfill that prophecy is by continuing the family line after this period of violence and tyranny is over. And as we're going to find out when we get into the story of Noah, he's going to have three kids to guarantee that heritage. And that's another interesting feature of Lamech. Back in Genesis 4, when Lamech appeared in the narrative, the next thing to come along were three kids. And in that case, they represented the proliferation of technologies that brought about opportunities for sin and depravity to proliferate. Now in Genesis 5, Lamech has appeared and Noah will have three children of his own, this time to restore the ground after the flood. But that's a story for next time. Why don't we leave it there then and we can pick up this story again next week. Yeah, I think that's a good idea, Chris. Hey, before we move on, I want to give a shout out to some friends. Not long ago, I made an appearance on the Two Trees podcast where I was a guest of John Dillon and his friends over there who made me very welcome. Make sure you check that one out. Actually, I hope the guys there are listening to this episode because we touched on this a little bit. I'm staring John a little bit here because I think this reading might sway his debate with Jacob the other way. If you're listening, you'll know what I mean. Also, I want to mention a YouTube channel, which is called Myths, Mysteries and Majesty. I'm going to be making an appearance there and having a conversation with my mate Nicola. He's been reading my book and we're going to have a conversation about that. Again, that's Myths, Mysteries and Majesty on YouTube. So look out for that one. Hey, Chris, do you know what I feel like at the moment? Answering some giant questions. Well, I was going to say warm jam donuts, but okay. What have you got for us? It's not donuts. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us at the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. This question comes from a guy named Tim. He posted it in the Answers to Giant Questions discussion group on Facebook. Tim asked, in the Gospel of John 19, verses 26 to 27, Jesus gives the care of his mother to John. And John, being so young, Jesus gives John to Mary. Now, this makes sense as Mary needed someone to look after her being a widow. My curiosity is Mary had other children, yet her care was not to be by them. So why did Jesus set this up the way he did? That's an interesting question. And I think the answer lies in the way that Jesus talks about family. Everyone's looking for the thrill, but what's real is family. I don't have friends. I got family. No, that's Vin Diesel. You don't turn your back on family. I live my life a quarter mile at a time. Nobody likes the tuna. Jesus doesn't drive a charger, Chris. Oh, man, I give up. What did Jesus say about family? Well, let's listen to the way that Jesus talks about who his family is. Here's a story that occurs in the three synoptic Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this story. It's interesting that John doesn't. I think that's a mark of the humility of John because he doesn't like to make a fuss about himself. Matthew and Mark have very similar wording with one important distinction. So follow these carefully and see what you notice. Luke is a bit different, but the emphasis remains the same. So we'll start with Matthew 12 from verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, if we go to Mark chapter 3 from verse 31, we're going to get the same story slightly differently worded. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. 
Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And now we'll go to Luke chapter 8 from verse 19. This one's a bit different. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, Your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. So it's an interesting perspective on family from Jesus. So is this just about obedience then? Well, I think that's a big part of it, but more to the point, it's what drives that obedience. Some people have interpreted this as the idea that family doesn't matter to Jesus. Like he just disowned his own mother, so he doesn't care about that because he's all about the gospel and the kingdom of God, so family's irrelevant. But I don't think that's a fair assessment of the situation. It's the people who follow the word of God who are faithful to the Father. And it's that faithfulness that gets you included in the family. The obedience is just the fruit of that. It's really important that we make that distinction because what it means is that following the rules for the sake of it doesn't count. It's expected that obedience to the Father is a result of faithfulness to Him. That's basically the founding premise of the biblical law. Remember that God saves us and brings us into the family of God before He expects us to reciprocate by living right. Okay, but how does that relate to this situation at the foot of the cross? Now let's have a look at the text from John 19 verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Now, this is the scene of the crucifixion. Judas has betrayed him. Peter's denied him. And everybody else, including the brothers of Jesus, has run away. Only John is left with the women at the cross. And what did we just say about the faithfulness to God? It's only the faithful who are counted as part of the family. So Jesus, at this time, is bringing his family together. He entrusts his mother to the care of his only remaining disciple out of the twelve, the Apostle John. The others had all disappeared. At the most critical time, they were nowhere to be found. When there were people in need, the followers of Jesus had disappeared. Who is the family of Jesus? It's those who stay by his side. It's those whose faithfulness manifests in obedience to the Father. So it should be no surprise to us that Jesus would entrust the care of those closest to him to the most faithful people in his life. And I think there's a message there for all of us. Let's try to be the kind of people that God himself would entrust with the care of those he loves. Let's make ourselves available to help those in need at times when we're hurting too. What a great, great message. It's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, I always thought it was touching that Jesus made sure his mother was taken care of, but the idea that he would choose his most faithful friend for the job, that's it's pretty powerful. It sure is. Someone should preach that. Anyway, that's all for this week. When we come back next week, we'll be talking about Noah, who is, of course, the final link in this genealogy. The end of Genesis 5 is so close, I can smell it. Indeed, yes, it's pretty exciting, which reminds me that when we do get to the end of our coverage of Genesis 5, it will be time for our usual break between seasons, where we take a month off to study, recharge the batteries before we begin the next season. And what a season it is going to be. Yeah, that's right, Chris. We're gearing up for Genesis chapter 6, and you just know that's going to be amazing. I hope people are going to take the time to go through the back catalogue of this podcast before we begin season 6, because we won't have time to go back over all the stuff we've been learning so far. We're just going to be building on it. Anyway, we still have a couple of episodes left to go in Genesis 5, so you have those to look forward to. And another reminder to just go and check out Myths, Mysteries, and Majesty on YouTube. I'll be making an appearance there soon, and there's heaps of other great content. Some of our audience might find some familiar faces there too. That's all for now. We'll see you next 
next week. See you soon. And don't forget to send in your giant questions via giantanswers.com. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Great Forsaken, greatforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more answers to giant questions. Read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. And now that we're in the lead up to the flood story, I guess we're back. Back. Back to the future. Back to the future. How may I direct your call today, sir? <laughs> I love Perth. The weather very nice today. <laughs> <laughs> Go that local sports team. <laughs> I, I am in Perth too. I can see the harbour bridge from my window. <laughs> and I'm trying out my new headset rather than have the the big microphone thing and all the pop filter and everything else in front of my face. Uh, I'm going to try this and see what kind of sound we get. I think we should have... Uh, some cleaner, better quality audio, uh, you know, now that we're <laughs> five, n- nearly six seasons in. <laughs> sure. Six season itch. Yeah. Obligatory uh, socialising. Obligatory pleasantries. Yeah, went to the footy on Sunday. Don't really want to talk about that. It was a terrible game. Uh, right. Not that that concerns you, but... <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> Yeah, people talk about it at work. But, but yeah. yeah. In the Gospel of John, 1926 to 27. I might say that again. This sounds like you, yeah. In, <laughs> 1926, wasn't that a band? Or was that 1927? 1927 was a band. Okay. Okay. Yeah, drink this stuff, you know, which is like turning on the, uh, turning on a rectal tap. Mm-hmm. It's very powerful. Um, <laughs> Thank you for that imagery. Yep, my pleasure. Came back here about 5.36, had some dinner, and then... It's a very precise I... time, 5.36, very precise time for dinner. Mm, it is. 5.37 would have been too late, would have been cold. Yeah, that's right. I, well, I turned again, Lamech, I don't get that reference. No, um, I don't expect anyone will. <laughs> well, you might have to explain it then, or do you? Um, no, you don't really no, I don't. mention the times, um, do you? I do not know. Um, it's it's from an old an old British children's storybook, and okay. um, about Dick Whittington, Lord Mayor of London, three times. Yeah, um, he started out as a homeless kid, and um, yeah, sort of worked his way up, and and ended up being three times the Lord Mayor of London. 
Right. And there was this sort of refrain throughout the book. Uh, whenever he heard the church bells ringing, he imagined them telling him to to turn back and have another go uh, and to try again and, you know, persevere. And that encouraged him to his success. Wow. You're right. That's pretty obscure. Yeah. it's I, I only used it because it's Lamech and we had that thing in season four where we talked about him as kind of the turning point in the story. Oh, okay. And the same thing happens this time, but it's a different guy and a different story. So it fits even if no one will get the reference. I'm not even going to talk about it as a reference. Don't. Um, and nobody will ever ask me except you. Well, maybe someone else will in the comments. You never know. You never know, but I reckon that would be drawing a very long bow. I don't think anyone in America reads British children's bedtime stories. No. <laughs> it's, it's a safe, safe bet. The book uh, was called Dick Whittington and His Cat. The title doesn't grab you. Okay, so I can't see the book and I'm not going to look for it. What kind of Dick Whittington persistence is that? Well, clearly I'm not going to be the Lord Mayor of London. Not even once. <laughs>